0: Following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. So let's read again uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father you love him. Though you do not know now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit in Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving, not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is writing this letter to exiled Christians, particularly Jews, who are scattered among five regions in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. They're undergoing intense persecution because of their faith. Now, many of these Christians are from Jerusalem and Israel, and uh, they've been uh, exiled as parts of efforts uh, to subdue the Jewish rebels who are trying to cast off Roman rule in Israel. Nero is the emperor, a bloodthirsty, vicious ruler who was mercilessly purging his empire of these Christians. Many of these Christians in exile are also scattered because of Saul's persecution as we read about in Acts chapter five. So they're getting it from their own Jewish rulers as well as from the Romans. Well, the Christians refused to worship the emperor as a god so they were viewed as atheists and traitors. Their refusal to worship at pagan temples negatively impacted businesses that depended on this, because they were making things like idols and things like that that they were selling uh, in order to support this practice. And we actually see a very specific example of this in Acts chapter eight, or excuse me, in Acts chapter nineteen, when a riot is started by Demetrius, who is a silversmith who sold these expensive tr- uh, shrines to the goddess uh, in in Ephesus. And further, Christians also did not embrace the Roman ideals of self and and power and conquest, while Romans looked down upon the Christian ideal of self-sacrificing service. Lastly, Christians exposed and rejected the deep immorality of the pagan culture, earning them not exactly favored status. Well, Peter probably wrote this letter around 62 or 64 AD, uh, which was actually very early on in terms of the most of the persecution that they would eventually see. In other words, the Romans and the Jews were just getting started. The most severe persecution was still 50 years or more ahead. These first century Christians were likely facing economic and social persecution from Romans, Jews, and their own families. Now, Judaism was legal in Rome, uh, and Christianity was considered a Jewish sect, so it was also legal. However, refusal to worship the the emperor or to join the army and the local disturbances, like in Acts 19, were punishable by law. And you could be put in a prison or beaten for them. Well, according to Roman law as well, heads of households had absolute authority and they could legally beat family members for following Christ. And in Matthew 10, Jesus warned his followers of this. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So that sets the stage for this letter. And again, this portion of the letter has three main points I'd like to share with you today. One, life is full of real trials. Two, but we have a living hope because of an inheritance that God has preserved for us. And thirdly, therefore, we can and must live as holy people in the midst of suffering. So let's get into the text. In verse 1, Peter greets the persecuted, scattered, elect exiles of the dispersion, not by telling them that everything is going to be okay or by telling them how wonderful they are, but by reminding them of how great God is and the pains he took to secure and preserve their salvation. He starts out with a very clear statement about the Trinitarian nature of God, very similar to what Paul wrote to Titus, as Nathan described to us last week. All three members of the Trinity work together to bring about our salvation. Let's look at verse 2. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this is more than just God knowing what was going to happen, but it's the Father planning and executing it. Remember, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In the sanctification of the Spirit, confirming Peter's assertion here, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us through belief in the truth and then for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Jesus sprinkled his blood for us on the cross. Romans 5 says that Christ died for the ungodly. He showed his great love for us in that while we were still sinners, he gave himself up for us. He died justifying us by his blood. He reconciled us even while we were his enemies. Accordingly, Peter blesses God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter continues by telling us that according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to two things. One, to a living hope, and two, to an inheritance. Why would God do such a thing? We do not come close to his standards of perfection as outlined in scripture. As Jonathan Edwards uh, Edwards calls it, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And yet, rather than using those hands to crush us with his justified anger, He uses them to extend his great mercy to us. He causes us to be born again. This regeneration produces assurance of eternal life, resulting in a living hope for today and animating believers to action, patience, fortitude, and perseverance to the end. And this is accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our transgression against this righteous God. The resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith, the foundation of a Christian's hope. The resurrection demonstrates that the Father accepts the Son's death as full payment for our ransom, and it is assurance for our own salvation in the last day. Again, a living hope. But the second thing this great mercy of God gives us, as seen in verse 4, is an inheritance. Last week, Nathan touched on this a bit in his sermon on Paul's letter to Titus, and I'll attempt to flesh this out a little bit more for us today. It's helpful to see, uh, to see this from the perspective of the recipients of this letter, elect exiles of the dispersion. They were poor and persecuted and may well have been denied their own family inheritances as they were disowned by their Jewish and pagan families. In addition, being chased out of their homeland, they carried a sense of disgrace and shame. The land of Canaan was their national inheritance from God, who gave them this land 1,400 years earlier. The people of Israel were only ever removed from this land as an act of judgment. And so to be exiled must have made some of these Jewish Christians wonder if they were under God's judgment again. But Peter has good news for them. They are newly born into a new family, with a new father, with a new inheritance. This inheritance is infinitely better than the ones they had lost. Peter helps them to realize the inheritance of the land of Canaan was nothing but a shadow of the real inheritance of Christ. Israel has all but perished in their day under Roman rule and the coming destruction of the temple. It was certainly defiled and seemed to be fading away into distant memory, at least compared to its original glory. So Peter tells them that this new inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Heaven is the inheritance of the children of God. So if they're born again, They are born again into this new inheritance. And Paul confirms this in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Those who are God's sons and daughters by adoption and regeneration receive this. The writer to the Hebrews says, therefore Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And so first, this inheritance is imperishable, meaning not subject to corruption or decay. This implies a change from better to worse or a decline of available energy or a diminishment from order to chaos. In scientific terms, it's entropy. And everything naturally tends in this direction. It's even demonstrated in the second law of thermodynamics. But Peter says this inheritance is not subject to entropy. It is without corruption. It has no end and does not change, just as the children of God exist forever without corruption. 1 Corinthians 15 says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, but the mor- and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death, is swallowed up in victory. And second, this inheritance is undefiled, or unstained, like the lamb who was slain to purchase it, and like the great high priest who oversees it. Again, Hebrews states, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And third, this inheritance is unfading. It is always as strong and firm and beautiful as it ever was. It is permanent. It is indestructible. As we can see in this heat that we've been having, flowers and grass wither and fade away. My hair is fading away. Our wealth, including our inherited wealth, fades away. Even stars, including our own, fade away. But our inheritance does not fade. How is that possible? Because the one who is himself eternal keeps it for us. This is glorious news. It says in verse 4 that this imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Paul prays for the Ephesian church that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened to see what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So Jesus gets a glorious inheritance and he keeps for us a glorious inheritance. These are precious things and he keeps them securely for us. Now here is where the letter really gets fun and humbling to us. Here, we really start to see the great love with which our Heavenly Father loves us. Let's read verses 3 through 5, which are all one sentence, and see what wonderful connection the Holy Spirit makes for us through Peter's hand. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This inheritance is being kept in heaven for us, and we are personally being guarded for this salvation by the Almighty God who rules the universe. El Shaddai keeps watch over us to preserve us for salvation. What security this gives us. We can rest assured, you can know that you can do nothing, I can do nothing, to screw up so badly that we can lose our salvation, because he is the one who guards it anyway. As John MacArthur has said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But the Ancient of Days faithfully guards it for us. Again, we turn back to to Ephesians, where Paul writes, and you also were included in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believe you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But wait, if I'm a believer, a Christian, aren't I saved now? What is this about a future salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? Isn't it revealed now? Well, I must say that this was always very confusing to me earlier on in my Christian walk, but there is a very real sense of the already and the not yet aspects of salvation, and both are paradoxically true. That is what much of this guarantee and deposit language is about. God has declared it so, even if we don't fully experience it yet. The very fact that he has said it means that it will happen, so we can consider it as good as done. A military officer gives a subordinate an order or a command. And because of his or her authority, the order is as good as carried out. In the movie The Green Mile, which is about a death row inmate awaiting execution, when a prisoner is escorted down the Green Mile, which is the green colored corridor between the holding cells and the execution chamber, uh, which seems like a mile to the guy walking down there uh, to be executed, the attending guard will call out for all to hear, dead man walking. This is a way of saying that this man is walking now, but he is as good as dead. The Roman centurion in the Gospels, uh, who comes to Jesus to ask him to heal his servant, he understood this about authority, and he knew that Jesus' command would result in his servant's healing. He knew that Jesus' words were as good as done. And thus, we are today saved from sin and death, already. But we continue to struggle with sin in our own lives, and certainly with the effects of sin around us. And so, not yet. But we are saved nonetheless because our ultimate salvation has already been secured by Jesus Christ. And it is being kept for us. And so, in this, we rejoice as these troubled exiles rejoiced. Peter understands that they may have had doubts about their future inheritance in light of now's trials. Matthew Henry states it well in his famous commentary. The heir to an earthly estate has no assurance that he shall live to enjoy it but the heirs of heaven shall certainly be conducted safely to the possession of it. When God promises that he will preserve us and our inheritance, it implies the possibility of otherwise losing it. But his promise means that this will never happen. They may be attacked, but they will not be overcome. The same is gloriously true of us. I do not doubt that most of us adults and perhaps some children have experienced significant trials in our lifetimes. And if you haven't, you almost certainly will. Big trials or even small trials over a long period of time can cause grief. Like our friend Andrew Fuller, some of us have experienced seemingly unending, compounding, dark trials with no end in sight. Or maybe just a constant dripping, drizzling rain that's only interrupted by torrential downpours of trouble. Yet God holds us fast by his love and his power. God's power is revealed in verse five, where it says, by God's power. His power is greater than our sin, our enemies, our temptations, the amount of work yet to do, our weaknesses. Paul himself, no stranger to trials and sorrow, describes this in this most familiar passage in Romans chapter eight. And you'll know this. For who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? not only does God preserve our inheritance and preserves us, but he also preserves our tears. Singer and songwriter and author Michael Card in his book, The Hidden Face of God, points out that our tears are of great value to God. Psalm 56, 8 says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows our tossing and turning in the long nights, and somehow, He collects and keeps our tears in a bottle, like a precious keepsake or an expensive perfume, or in a book like a child's flower given to his or her mother. In light of this, David gains strength and writes twice in this psalm, in God whose word I praise, in Yahweh whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? May God's keeping of our inheritance, of us, and our tears strengthen and encourage us in our trials. But why does God allow all these trials and grief to touch His children? I mean, why doesn't He just prevent them in the first place? Look at verse seven. One reason is so that the tested genuineness of our faith may result in praise and glory and honor at Christ's return. Our trials and afflictions are used by God to try our faith. God did this with the Israelites in the wilderness. And the Lord Jesus did it with Peter himself. I'm sure Peter's mind often went back to that night in Jerusalem in that upper room um, when, uh, when Jesus told him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Of course, Peter did fail this immediate test, though his faith was restored and preserved. Another reason God tests our faith is not so that he can see its qualities, but so that we can. This faith is precious like gold. Gold's preciousness is increased by fire. As gold is heated and melted down, impurities or dross rise to the top of the molten metal and it's skimmed off, leaving behind a purer, more precious gold. As physical gold is tested by extreme heat, so is our faith. The difference is an ounce of gold measured, uh, melted down and purified is less than an ounce after it solidifies and cools again. It becomes less. However, our faith, when it is purified, increases. Not only that, but even though gold is such a precious commodity, it will one day burn up as well. Entropy will get it too, but it can't touch our faith. It will be found to be pure and lasting. Peter reminds his readers in verse 8 that their faith is in some ways superior to his own. He spent probably every day over the course of three years walking closely with the Lord Jesus, interacting with him, having confusing parables described and explained to him in secret, arguing with him, walking on water with him, eating fish and bread that he simply created in front of him, and yet he denied him three times. These Christians have not even seen Jesus, and they don't know him now, but they love him. I mean, they love him. They believe in him and respond with joy. They don't just know a lot of things about him and have their theology straight. They love him, and their joy is inexpressible. Remember, they have been kicked out of their families, kicked out of their land, and may not have been looked upon favorably as refugees, and therefore been kicked out of God knows how many other places. Sorrow upon sorrow, and yet... They rejoice with joy inexpressible, compelled by their deep love of Jesus Christ, their Savior. May we see our salvation properly in the context of our circumstances. And now, just to drive the point home about salvation and to, ensure, uh, to assure them that he isn't just making this up, Peter turns to the Old Testament prophets. In verse 10, he shows them that this doctrine of salvation is not a new doctrine at all. It is as old as Israel itself. The prophets who delivered this message did so without full knowledge of what they were being compelled by the Holy Spirit to declare. It was beyond the limits of their own studies and knowledge, but they did seem to have some dim, cloudy, incomplete understanding of God's salvation for his people and for the Gentiles who would also become God's people and the grace by which he would save them all. Given that incomplete knowledge, the prophets were apparently compelled to search out and carefully inquire to know more about these things. They really wanted to know what God was telling them. Much in the same way today, there are those who investigate and scrutinize the scriptures, and sometimes the news, to know more about the end times, for example. In spite of a lot of confident assertions, we frankly just do not know what it will be like. So our knowledge is incomplete as well. The Old Testament prophets also bear witness to God's faithful keeping of his people and his message. We already talked about how he keeps our inheritance for us, how he guards us for salvation, and how he even keeps our tears. Here we see that he has taken great pains through the ages to keep the message for us through his holy prophets and their perseverance in telling the story. All the prophets knew was that God was using them somehow to keep before his people the assurance that he had a glorious plan for their complete redemption and that these prophets were not serving themselves but us. And now at last, these things have been announced. The mystery is revealed. Chris spoke of this a couple weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 3, which describes how both Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, his church, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and that this was hidden from previous generations. But it has now been made known. This is so amazing that even the angels who are literally in God's presence in the the throne of heaven don't understand it, and they would have loved to have known all of this. And with that, Peter wraps up by showing us how this impacts us in the here and now. Finally, and I won't go into all of it, he starts with an important transition statement in verse 13 that tells us clearly where he is going. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We must prepare our minds for action. This entails being mentally alert as opposed to just settling for a completely blind faith. Faith in Christ is a reasonable thing, not a mindless blind faith. We must engage our sober minds as we study his word and meditate on what it means, working with the Holy Spirit to settle these truths down into our being. And then, with our activated, sober minds, we can set our hope fully on the grace that will be fully brought to us upon Christ's return, which is something else God is keeping for us. We do know this grace in part now, but we will know it fully then, and we can set our hope on it. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I, know, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When we set our hope on something, that is not the same thing as just hoping for it. No, we place our hopes and our expectations on Christ and his grace. We anticipate it with joy and confidence. And this requires a sound mind, one that is watchful in anticipation of what will surely happen. His grace will be fully revealed to us. As Peter did, I'm really addressing my Christian brothers and sisters who have this living hope in our inheritance of eternal life in God's presence. But if you're here this morning or watching on the live stream, and you do not have this living hope, I invite you to do a couple of things. One, with a sober, sound mind, take an honest assessment of your relationship with God. Do you even have one? And two, if not, you only have one thing standing in your way, your sin. Like all of us here once did, you are rejecting God, and you are his enemy. But be of good cheer. If you will repent of your sin and believe the gospel, which is simply a way of saying, believing that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, then put your hope and your trust in him and in that. Turn from your wicked ways and turn toward the one true God through the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross on your behalf. Confess your sinful nature to God and enter into this glorious inheritance. No one can doubt that our brother Andrew Fuller suffered greatly under the pressure of nearly constant unending trials. But we also know that God used these trials in Fuller's life to test and refine his faith, and ultimately to bring into the kingdom untold numbers of people through his own congregation and through his missions work. The genuineness of his faith has certainly been found to result in praise and glory and honor to God. He was kept by God for salvation. And let us, in the midst of trials, recall that we also have a living hope because of an inheritance of salvation that God is keeping for us, and in so doing, live as holy people in the midst of that suffering. Let's pray. God of the universe, you are beyond our understanding and beyond our ability to reach. Thank you for condescending to reach down to us in your great mercy. We glory this morning in the amazing inheritance that you have given us, that we have now, but will experience in all of its fullness when your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, comes back for his people. Give us strength and courage to live our days in the surety of that inheritance, following you wholeheartedly and living as holy people. By your Spirit, draw any here who don't know you or on the live stream to yourself, and may your kingdom come on earth, just as it is in heaven, where our inheritance lies. And we pray these things in your glorious name. Amen.